And what a joyous morning it is for us to be assembled and gathered as the people of God here at the Pippin Congregation. And not only are we thankful for our membership, but for all the visitors who've come our way today. It's our genuine delight and our hope that we each can offer our worship unto God who so richly deserves it and do so in a way that's honorable and pleasing and acceptable to Him. As certainly we're also very much aware of this season of the year, tomorrow being the Christmas day and today being the eve of Christmas, there are so many thoughts and matters that cross our mind and youngsters are so excited and there's a flurry of activity and perhaps a bit of excitement that fills the hearts of so very many. And today I've entitled the lesson, Jesus and Christmas. And for the next few moments, we're going to take a bit of a considered study, a consideration if you please, and ask about that, that relationship between Christ on the one hand and Christmas on the other. And as we do that, I hope we'll each be encouraged and motivated and we'll have a richer appreciation of what this Christmas holiday is all about. And as we do that, of course, we'll be reminded above all things else about the nature of the truth of God as seen in the Word of God. This next slide is one in which we will look in some detail at the features of an introduction. You'll notice on that particular slide the name Jesus. You and I have already uttered that name so many times, not only in the wording of the announcements, as Gary mentioned it, but also in songs and even in prayer. Isn't it, a, in a sense, a bit shocking how in many ways throughout the year, the name Jesus in many cases is not often heard. In other words, due to political correctness or perhaps due to indifference or apathy, the word just is not often used, but yet this season of the year is one where the word Jesus, it seems, at least is often heard. We can at least be thankful for that. But what you'll notice near the bottom of that slide is our goal, our desire, our yearning as people who would be pleasing to God is to always be faithful and always be true to that which is the teaching of the Word of God. And so today, you and I might ask, what is it then about Christmas? For many Christians, Christmas is confusing because as they search through the Word of God, they don't find the Word anywhere. And isn't it a bit interesting? In all the 66 books of the Bible, the word Christmas is not found. And yet, it seems, at least in the mind of many, to be so strongly connected with Jesus. Let's develop that a bit more carefully this morning. As we do that, on the next slide, you'll notice with me, I thought it would be wise to rehearse the traditional story. Now, this is one in which if you have seen many Christmas plays, if you have seen many Christmas presentations or skits, this seems to, in fact, involve much of what is presented. But the story goes like this. Joseph and Mary had to travel from their place of Nazareth to the distant city of Bethlehem. Mary at the time was very great with child. In fact, she was about to deliver the, the one that would be called Jesus. And so as they come near the city of Bethlehem, they first are turned away from the inn by, by an innkeeper. As this gentleman turns them away, they ultimately find residence in a stable, basically a barn. And there she brings forth the one that would be called Jesus. This babe is placed in a manger. He's wrapped in swaddling clothes. And you'll notice following that in the story, it seems as if we're more often than not told that that birth happened the very day they arrived in Bethlehem. And not only that, 
you may appreciate this. Shortly after the birth, three visitors come from a distant place in the east. They are wise men, as the Bible describes them, and they bring gifts. In fact, the Bible lists some three of these gifts, and many thus portrayed as three wise men. And following that, the last observation is this. Historically, it is asserted this all happened on the 25th of December. Now that story is one again that has so often gripped the thoughts and the minds of many. But you and I might now ask, how much of it is biblically correct? How much of it is true and consistent with the Word of God? Well, let's turn to the next slide and we'll see what the answer to that in fact is. You'll notice what I'd like you to consider with me is we're going to try to lift high today the truth of the Word of God. And as we do that, we'll be reminded of the great arching truth that is the God of heaven and what He has revealed to us. But we'll do that by making several observations. First of all, at the top of that slide, there's not a single mention in the biblical text that Mary rode a donkey into Bethlehem. Although that's the way it's usually portrayed, although that's often the way it is described in skits and presentations, the Bible says nothing about it. In fact, it's at this point I would invite you to pause and listen as I read from Luke chapter 2 and listen to the stirring scene. And it came to pass in the days, in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, every one into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth unto Judea, unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary his espoused wife, being great with child." And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid." And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you, ye shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men." You'll notice in that, these observations then, first of all, you notice no mention of a donkey as far as Mary riding on one into the city of Bethlehem. Although then that may be a part of the presentations, no doubt of many, it seems to be conspicuously absent from the biblical passage we just read. And By the way, Matthew's version also mentions nothing about it. But notice also in that line the following. Did you notice that typically what has happened in the portrayals is Joseph and Mary come to an innkeeper who in fact turns them away because there's no room for them in the inn. But you'll notice the biblical text says nothing about an innkeeper. There's not even an innkeeper mentioned. 
Now, what might you and I make of that? And I've tried to develop it like this. First of all, might you and I take note, there was no Motel 6 in the ancient world. There was no Holiday Inn. There was nothing like that known anywhere. Typically what happened in that day and time, individuals stayed with their relatives. Or you stayed with kind individuals who would open their house in hospitality to you. But someone might be quick to say, but doesn't it say there was no room for them in the inn? Well, yes, it does say that. But what's that Greek word? I've tried to help you appreciate the definition of it. That word occurs two other times in the New Testament. Once in Mark 14, 14, and once in Luke twenty two eleven, And in both those cases, it's translated as a guest chamber. May I say to you again, there's nothing in this passage before us that talks about any ancient motel. Rather, what you and I should appreciate is, in all likelihood, since Joseph had family living in Bethlehem, as they were staying with family members. But it does say there was no room in the house's guest chamber. In other words, there were already guests there staying, and there was no room for Joseph and Mary in that which was their guest room, if you please. That being said, you may notice this. Jesus thus likely was born outside the guest chamber, maybe in the main living quarters of the house. But it wasn't a barn, and it wasn't what was typically portrayed as a stable. But isn't it interesting, it does say He was laid in a manger. Apparently they did find a feeding trough or something like that in which the babe Jesus was placed. That observation does give us a slightly different impression, doesn't it, about the nature of what took place as Luke chapter 2 verses 1 to 14 puts it before us. But let's go ahead and note yet the next one. You'll notice that, again, it's typically asserted that Mary gave birth to Jesus as they made it into Bethlehem. But would you note verse number 6 with me of Luke chapter 2? It says, And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. We do not know how long they were in Bethlehem before Mary gave birth to the Christ. It may, apparently based on that wording, it may well have been several days, if not a few weeks. So again, one more time, sometimes the features presented from biblical narratives is rather different than what is commonly portrayed. But that isn't all. Why don't we look at yet number four? As far as the number of wise men, you and I noticed earlier it just says in the text that wise men came. It doesn't say how many. In fact, even in Matthew's version, when that is put before us, it lists only three of those particular gifts that they brought. And those again were gold and frankincense and myrrh, but it says nothing about the number of the men. As you and I give thought to being true to the Word of God, it's our desire always then to lift high the sweetness and the truth of that message. Doesn't that quickly bring us to this one? I know tomorrow is that day on our calendar called Christmas Day. And the first six letters of that word Christmas is Christ. And it, of course, has become for centuries a linkage and a strong connection between the Christ as His birth and this celebration of Christmas. But may I ask you to notice, in all likelihood, Jesus was not born at the time of year you and I recognize as Christmas. I've stated it like this. 
it is a strong likelihood that Jesus wasn't even born in what we would call December. Let me show you from the Bible why it is we perhaps should make that conclusion. First of all, nowhere does the Bible come out and pinpoint the day that Jesus Himself was born. It would seemingly be that the God of heaven did not desire the human family to know that, for if He had wished it, He certainly would have recorded it. But you and I note the following. We can piece together a few things. First of all, it does say in Luke 2 verse 8 that at the time the Savior was born, there were shepherds abiding in the field at night. That suggests that it was warm enough in that season of the year to where it was usual for shepherds to be abiding outdoors at night. Now in the modern day, even in that day, in Bethlehem, their weather's about like ours. It's cold at night. That suggests it wasn't December. In fact, that suggests it wasn't January or February or anything like that. But may I suggest there's even a stronger appreciation, and it goes like this. You and I are given the following information. We know from Luke chapter 1 that John the Baptist was six months older than Jesus. We do know that much biblically. And so if we can pinpoint when John the Baptist was born, then we will know pretty closely when Jesus was born. It all begins with John's parents. John's father was named Zacharias and his mother was named Elizabeth. And Luke chapter 1 gives us the record. And would you note with me Luke chapter 1 verse number 5. It says, There was in the days of Herod the king of Judea a certain priest named Zacharias of the course of Abiah, and his wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Of all the features of that verse that probably would be not so apt to capture our attention, it's that little phrase of the course of Abiah. But oddly enough, therein lies a clue. As you and I revisit First Chronicles chapter 24, we notice that all of the priests of Israel were graded in ranks. And the course of Abiah was the eighth rank. Now the ranking, those priests began their service at the season of Passover, and so they all served for one week. And since John's father was Zechariah and he was of the course of Abiah, all we've got to do is go to the Passover season and add nine weeks. And that'll tell us the season of the year when Zechariah was serving as priest. Now the Passover occurs in late March or early April. And therefore, if you take that time of year and add eight weeks to it, that brings you to late May or early June. So Zechariah was serving as priest in the temple in Jerusalem in late May or early June, as we would call it. But that's the very time when, remember, Zechariah and Elizabeth were barren, and Zechariah went into the temple and God told him, your wife Elizabeth is going to bear a son. And you may remember that Zechariah was made dumb. He was unable to talk. But isn't it true? The text says that he went back to his home after his service was completed, and that's when his wife conceived. Now all we have to do is add nine months. If she conceived in late May or early June... Adding nine months would take you to late February or early March. So John was born in late February or early March. And Jesus was born six months later. So the Lord Himself was born either in late August or early September. 
Jesus wasn't born, you see, in December. He wasn't. All the biblical evidence we have suggests that this season of the year, though it's linked to Christ's birth, it is not when He was born. I've tried to summarize that again with that fifth point. Isn't it a bit interesting then one might ask, so how did Christmas come about this way? Would you and I be interested to know several hundred years passed after the first century before human family, someone had the idea. There were already pagan festivals and heathen occurrences that occurred at about this season of the year and someone had the idea, we need a time for Christians to celebrate. And they chose this time in late December. But again, it has nothing to do with Christ's birth. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Isn't it interesting then that brings us to point number six. Now we aren't at all surprised the word Christmas does not occur in the Bible anywhere. Because again, what, was now, what you and I would now recognize as Christmas didn't start until hundreds of years after the Bible was written. That does lead us to point number seven. And that seventh point is this one. Christmas is a secular holiday, but it's not a holy day. Again, it has nothing to do with anything the Bible even mentions in terms of celebrating Christ's birth. It's at the wrong time of year and everything else. And not only that, nowhere in the Word of God do we encounter the God of heaven asserting that He wishes the human family to hold high this as a holy day. Rather, what you and I do as we turn the slide to appreciate what next, what's next is to perhaps reflect for a moment upon this Christian celebration, rather this Christmas celebration as I should call it. You and I are so accustomed then to pondering. We put up Christmas trees and string lights and sing carols and exchange gifts and enjoy a time coming together with family and friends. And there isn't anything wrong with that. In fact, you and I would be encouraged to think about circumstances along that line. But might you and I appreciate this. May we understand it's not a time to give the impression that Jesus was born at this season of the year because He wasn't. All the evidence we have from the precious Word of God highlights that as wonderful as it is to appreciate what's involved in this Christmas season, this secular holiday of Christmas, it is not something to turn it into a religious holiday. You and I have been told how God wants us to honor Christ. We're about to memorialize Him in a few minutes. We do it every first day of the week. We think about His death, reflect upon His blood, give consideration to His body, and we honor Him by being a part of His body, which is the church. God has given us no commandment to hold high a holy religious day as if it was to honor His birth that way. It would be perfectly honorable to preach a sermon on the birth of Christ in September, or perhaps to preach a sermon on the birth of Christ in late August. And you and I would feel that perfectly appropriate. Isn't it amazing then as you appreciate some of the features on this, as we put high the nature of the secular holiday of Christmas, might you and I desire not to give anybody the wrong impression. 
it likely wouldn't be wise to put a nativity scene in, in your yard as if to give the impression that Christ was born at this time of year because He wasn't. Or to hang a star of David on the outside of your house. That wouldn't be wise either, giving the impression again that this star, as the birth of Christ indicates, was at this time of year. You and I would be honored to teach the truth on the Word of God as it relates to any of these things, but never to give the impression of what's not true. Keeping all that in mind, perhaps one last slide, and that's this one. May I suggest to each of us that I suppose there's nothing any sweeter, nothing any purer, nothing any more innocent than the image of the baby Jesus. And there are individuals around the globe who clamor in honor, appreciating and thinking about the majesty and the wonder of that Christ child. After all, He was born of a virgin. And we know biologically that cannot happen. It can happen miraculously, and that it did. It fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah 7 verse 14. But may I suggest that as sweet and as pure and as innocent as that Christ child is, and how so many people gravitate to Him, it all changes when you think about the adult Jesus. Now let's be honest. Every baby is pure and innocent and sweet. Every baby is because they, they have no sin. A baby is not born in sin. The Bible overwhelmingly teaches that babies are born innocent and sinless and guileless and pure because they're made, of course, by the great God of heaven. And Zechariah 12 verse 1 says that their spirits are made by God. Isn't it then interesting? The baby Jesus is so much a matter of intrigue and interest, and folks gravitate to Him, but they don't gravitate to the adult Jesus. What's the difference? Well, the difference is easy. The baby Jesus doesn't make any demands on you. All you do is ooh and ah at Him and think about what He brought about. But it's the adult Jesus who makes demands. He says, you've got to follow Me. You've got to do what I say if you want to go to heaven. There is no alternative way. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by Me, John 14, 6. And it's the adult Jesus who said, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. Mark 16, 16. Isn't it amazing then that baby Jesus who makes no demands, seeming, seemingly so innocent and sweet, the whole world gravitates to Him. But the adult Jesus, they put Him to death. They nailed Him to a cross. They vilified Him. They reviled Him and hated upon Him. And as they did all of that, of course, the world in many ways today still has no great love loss for the adult Jesus because His way is too narrow. It's too rigorous and too straight and too strict. But as you and I love the Lord Jesus Christ, we not only love the baby Jesus, we also, of course, love the adult Jesus because we do want to go to heaven. We do want to do what He says, and we do want to enjoy those rewards and that final place of destination for the faithful. It is with that in mind I've listed several passages of Scripture. Could I invite you to consider some of them with me? 
this adult Jesus, this very one who in fact said, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now that text of Matthew 11, verses 28 to 30, is a passage that in fact issues a tremendous invitation, but that same Jesus was an adult by that time. And He wished for one and all to come to Him for comfort and rest and salvation and redemption. As that is asked upon us, look at John 2, verse number 5. There, wasn't it true that it was Mary who herself said, Whatsoever He saith unto you, do it. The adult Jesus does make demands of you and me. In fact, of everybody. We can't expect to go to heaven and please Him by doing whatever we like, the way that we like, when we like. We must do that which He says. Isn't it odd then that the world which is so excited to think about that baby Jesus is so far less excited to think about the adult version. That adult version went to the cross. That adult version with weeping character in essence asserted so greatly an invitation to come and be covered by His blood. But He leaves that invitation for you and for me to respond to it. He won't make us. And so look at verses like John 14, verse 15. Ye are my friends if you do whatsoever I command you. Are you and I the friend of Christ? Not the baby Christ now, but the adult Christ. Do we do what He tells us? Every day of the year, not just this season, honoring what He says, obeying Him, leaving out of our life those things which He condemns, and fully striving to incorporate those things which He endorses. He did say, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. That's a challenge for every one of us, not just at this time of year, but every time of the year. And why don't we add to that this one in John 15, 10. Being a friend of the Christ means that every day, suffering persecution or enjoying the fine roadway of service to His cause, we enjoy what it means to be a servant of His because we faithfully wear that name Christian. And the first six letters again are Christ. In addition to that, what about Hebrews 5 verses 8 and 9? Though He were a son, yet learned He obedience by the things which He suffered and being made perfect. He became the author of eternal salvation to all them that obey Him. Those that obey Him are the ones who will be blessed with eternal life. There's a big difference in many ways between the baby Jesus and that adult version. The adult version brings us redemption, Ephesians 1.7. And that redemption happens with His blood. Have you been washed in His blood? Now the baby Jesus couldn't have said that, but the adult version could because that blood He shed voluntarily and willfully, John 10 verses 17 and 18. Later, Paul would say in Acts 13, verses 38 and 39, you could not be forgiven and justified from sin by that old law, but now by the blood of Christ you can. Have you and I been washed in the blood of the Lamb? Have you been baptized for the remission of your sins? There would be no better day than the de December the 24th if you are not a faithful Christian. 
than to become one today. I can't make you one, neither can our elders, only Christ. For we're told in Acts 2.47, He will add us to the church if we do what He says. Have you been baptized? You need to believe in Jesus with all of your heart. Repent of your sins, confess His name, and then as the culminating act, you are baptized into Christ. And it is an overwhelming event fraught with all significance for eternity for you. Because then as you contact His blood, His blood washes your sins away. You're clean and pure and innocent just like the baby Jesus was at that moment. Isn't it amazing that if you then will live faithfully until death, heaven will be your home. But you realize that that adult Jesus says that of course throughout our life, if we stumble, if we fall, if we begin to act disgracefully and in sin bring reproach upon ourselves and upon Him... He is so loving and merciful, He'll forgive us if we'll come back to Him. He won't forgive us in an unrepentant state, but if we repent and confess those things, He will forgive, 1 John 1, verses 7 and 8. Today, as we conclude this lesson, we have studied about Jesus and Christmas. We found there are many misconceptions about it. Now, I've tried to summarize some of them on that slide. There are many things about that traditional story which, frankly, are not consistent with the Bible. Man has written into it a lot of things that perhaps are nice for a story, but they're not always biblically true. You and I wish to go by the book only because we know in that book we find the words of salvation, John 6, verse 63. Today, if there's anybody in this audience that's not a faithful member of the body of Christ... Don't you want to be? Don't you want to then feel all the blessing and honor that comes with being a child of God? Today, if we could assist you, realize the plan of salvation is what the Bible details. It's not our idea. Jesus is the one that said you must believe and repent and confess and be baptized. And because He said it, we lovingly wish to do it. And if there's anyone in the audience today who hasn't taken care of that need, why do you remain distant from the Savior? That baby grew up and he did go to a cross and he did pave the way whereby you and I can be forgiven from sin. If you'd like to become a Christian, it could be accomplished in but a few moments today. If we could study with you, if there are questions you have, let one of our elders or myself know. We'd be happy to study with you. If you, however, have become a Christian but you aren't faithful today, there will never be a finer day than this one for you to come home. Don't you want to come home? Sometimes we sing a song, coming home, and that could happen for you today. If you would repent of those sins, confess them, the congregation here would be honored to pray to God on your behalf. We love everybody in the same way that Jesus does. But Jesus won't save everybody because not everybody will come to Him. If you'd like to come to Him today, we're going to stand in just a moment and sing this psalm of encouragement. It's an opportune time, a convenient time, and one in which we would invite one and all to come, whoever would need to do so while together we stand and while we sing.